Let us pray. Lead me forth in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation, and you has been my hope all the day long. Amen. Today we carry on with another story about a vineyard. If you were here last week, you remember that the vineyard is an image used in the Holy Word of God to denote the people of Israel, God's chosen of the Old Testament, as well as the church, his chosen of the New Testament. And so by extension, it includes all followers of Jesus, all those that we call the church militant, that is, the church at work today. That image of the vineyard carries over and connects intentionally last week's parable of the laborers in Matthew chapter 20 with this week's parable, as well as next week's parable where we'll return to the vineyard and talk about the wicked tenants. You see, each parable is describing something about the kingdom of heaven. And again, when we say the kingdom of heaven, we're not talking about the existence after death, but we're talking about the right rule of God here and now, whenever that here and now is in the church, in the hearts of God's laborers and sons. Today's parable is short, but profound. Look at, look at it with me in your Bibles in Matthew chapter 21 or in your insert there on the last page. Let's look at the first two lines. It begins with Jesus being provocative, saying, What do you think? We can't miss that. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go into the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not, but afterward changed his mind and went. The first son is directly disobedient to his father. He outright refuses to do the will of the father in the work of the vineyard. While that's rude and disrespectful in our time, it would have been shocking even more in Jesus' time. Not only was such defiance scandalous, but it was considered so egregious that in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 21, an adult son that did this could be condemned to death by stoning. And that reason for such a severe punishment was that such disobedience and rebellion imitates the way of Lucifer, that angelic being who at one time served God, leading the praises of God, and led a rebellion of angels out of heaven. And of course, that ties well with the readings that we read this week for St. Michael and all angels, where we heard that story from the book of Revelation and elsewhere. But not just that. Such rebellion was unjust and could destroy not just the livelihood or the family, but the entire culture if it was embraced. 
God's rule, you see, friends, is just. The Jews and Christians believe that all earthly justice must participate and therefore be derived from the rule of God or the justice of God. There's no separate justice for a nation or a state or a people or a family or, or the church from the justice of God. There is one justice which others either participate in or do not. So injustice matters a great deal to God and justice is a hallmark of his kingdom. You know, there's an oft-quoted line bandied about in current American politics. We've heard it a lot in the last few years. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Have you heard that line? Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And that is true. Absolutely, it is true. Whether one's talking about equal treatment under the law for blacks in 1963, or for babies in utero in 2023. Justice is an extension of God's rule, and violations of it take away from it. You see, people are eager to take that line from Martin Luther King's brilliant letter to the clergy from a Birmingham jail in 1963 and apply it to their own political purposes. But most people don't read the rest of the letter. So I want to read to you a section from that letter that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote in Letters from a Birmingham Jail, in which that line comes. But this also comes from it. Martin Luther King writes, Now, what's the difference between the two? How does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. To put it in the terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal law and natural law. That's the end of Martin Luther King Jr.'s quote from his letters from a, from a Birmingham jail. You see, he understood that justice mattered to God and that all justice was based in God's justice and that an attack on true justice in his day, segregation and racism, was something that was unjust and something that was not in alignment with God's will. God is the anchor, the definer of justice, no matter what people, whether it be the majority or the minority of people, think. Justice is not subject to democracy. Although it is by democracy that we maintain it or get rid of it in this country. Look at our first reading where God corrects his people's thinking about justice. Ezekiel chapter 18 Particularly, look with me at verse 29 and 30. The Lord says through the prophet Ezekiel, Yet the house of Israel says, The way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Back to our parable. 
When the father asks the son to go work in the vineyard today, the son, the first son answers, I will not. In doing so, he's not just voicing disobedience and rebellion, he's voicing a contempt for justice, a contempt for God's will, for the father in this parable is God. The second son gives lip service to his father and therefore to justice. We see that in verse 30. And he went to the other son and said the same, and he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. You see, the second son voices disobedience and contempt, but his actions are those of justice. But before contemplating the rest of the parable, and answering Jesus' question that he began with, what do you think? Let's keep looking at God's word to Ezekiel. The first thing noting, the first thing worth noting is that God's idea of justice is not inherited. No person bears the responsibility for what his father and grandfather or mother and grandmother did. God rejects inherited injustice or justice. Look at the first four verses. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall, not, shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father, as well as the soul of the son, is mine. The soul, of, uh, the soul of who sins shall die. And of course, the passage goes on to outline this theme and develop it. Each individual will stand before God and give an account for what he or she has thought, said, and done, as St. Paul reaffirms in Romans 14:12, And the Athanasian Creed also states, that is justice. That is the law. But there's a second property of God that does not conflict with his justice, and that is his love. Particularly, in today's readings, his love of repentance. You see, God loves when his creatures turn around from pursuing injustice and what is evil and wrong and embrace what is right. Consider the prodigal son. Consider the late-coming laborers of last week's vineyard. Consider the thief on the cross. In verse 32, we read God saying through Ezekiel, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. So turn and live. And that's not the only time that this message occurs in the Old Testament either. In just Ezekiel, God echoes this in 18, chapter 18, verse 23. And later on in Ezekiel 33, verse 11, where he phrases it slightly differently and says it this way. As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? I don't know about you, but whenever I read that passage, Godspell, which was a musical that I, I did in high school, comes up. Another song, 
turn back, O oh man, forsake thy evil ways. Right? It's true. God loves repentance because he loves us. Look once more at the reading. Repentance is the gift from God. By his grace, he promises that he will judge human beings not where they begin, but where they finish. Not where they begin, but where they finish. And that itself is a great mercy. As we look at Ezekiel, again, chapter 18, verse 25 through 27, we read this. Yet you say the way of the Lord is not just. Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not just? It is, is, it, is it not your ways that are not just? When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. For the injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life. Because he considered and turned away from all the transgressions that he committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Do you see God stating very clearly his preference for repentance, his preference that the wicked should turn to him, his judging at the finish line, not the starting line. That's what Jesus' parable is all about with the two sons. Technically, they both repent in the technical use of the Greek, right? Because repent just means to turn around, to turn around. The one turns around from the way of righteousness to the way of wickedness. The other turns around from the way of wickedness to the way of righteousness. In Matthew's gospel, gospel, the Lord Jesus is testifying here, specifically in this context, about the Jewish leaders, those religious folk that are in the temple. Because remember, in Matthew's gospel, this passage comes where? Right after Jesus cleanses the temple, right after he curses the fig tree, right after he's confronted by the chief priests and the elders of the temple. Further, Jesus interprets it himself for us, which is nice. Look at the gospel again, this time verse 31 and 32. Which of the two did the will of the Father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Ugh. How about that as an answer? For John came to you, he continues, in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. And yet it's interesting. This parable leaves open the door for repentance, even for the religious leaders. We don't know where they're going to end up, do we? Jesus, to the very end, is holding off and trying to get people to repent rather than punish and condemn for injustice. But in this, we also see application today. For in the church today, talk is cheap. It shouldn't be, but it is. 
There are many in the church who claim the desire to do God's will, sometimes when we look in the mirror, and do not. We say, I will go, and do not. Sometimes we say, I will not go, and we do. And Jesus gives us here both encouragement and a warning. Very rarely does the Father come to us individually with explicit instructions about how we're to serve him in the vineyard. Although he still does. He truly does, friends. I can tell you stories about that. And he does give us, however, all the time, his general will, his general purpose, of which this parable is one, that he does not delight in the death of a sinner, but that he would turn from his wickedness and live. Why do you think our Book of Common Prayer starts every morning prayer service with that? It's the words of assurance after we confess that God would not have us perish, but we would turn from our wickedness and live. That is something of great hope. On the other hand, there's grave warning here too. That those who say, I will go, that those who embrace the way of righteousness in word only and not in actions do not have faith. James confirms this, doesn't he, in his epistle? And on meditating upon this, we need to let this word soak into us that in the areas where we're weak, we might be encouraged that we can always bring things before the Lord and repent and make things in alignment with his will. His hand is always outstretched for us to do that in our walk. But we also must be careful that we not harden our hearts, that we not just run over these passages and think, well, I've got it, I'm safe, I'm good. I'm assenting to believing in Jesus. I'm coming to church. I'm reading my Bible and not doing the, word of, the will of God. For justice is important to him and is a hallmark of his kingdom. We see that he loves justice. We see that he loves repentance. How many more will finish well if the church were faithful with this message, not just to one another, but to the world around us? May we be so. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.